session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Rolakwi. I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Not taking any calls today because I have a guest for tonight. You could follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So my guest tonight... Uh, deserves an introduction, but he won't get one because he's my brother. But we will be talking about a very important topic, which is the gun debate, especially in the United States, which is always a very uh, polarizing and intense conversation because it brings up so many important issues and things like safety, protection on both sides. It brings up issues related to safety. Um, and so people get very passionate about it. And so wanted to bring on my brother, Parham Holakwi. Welcome. Thank you, Fadid. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, always enjoy our discussions. I always listen to your show. And it's, uh, it's great to be with you in person. We're also on Instagram Live right now, I think, if it's on. It might be on. Right. Um, on my page. Very cool. Yes. So hopefully Hello. the sound is coming through. It may not be, but most importantly, Amrijun, hopefully the sound is okay in the in the microphones. We're good. We're good to go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as, as I mentioned, we wanted to talk about this issue of gun gun violence, the gun debate, because it's a very pressing issue. Sadly, almost at any time you can have this debate, and it's relevant. It also, in some ways, too soon because they're is shootings very regularly in the United States that reach media attention. Uh, but we wanted to talk about it. Of course, we know it's not going to solve the issue, just having this conversation, but we could not ignore this very important issue. We want to share some thoughts on it, discuss some different um, topics related to guns and guns in the United States from a legal perspective, psychological perspective, social perspective, and sharing our own thoughts and opinions, recognizing we come into any type of a discussion debate with our own biases, some of that we might discuss later as well, that that's part of any kind of moral type of argument we have. Feelings are there, biases are there that are important to acknowledge that usually it's not just about facts and figures as much as we want it to be. It's about much more than that. But um, yeah, I'm glad I have you here, Parham, because you have a legal background as well, which is very relevant in this case, because we're always going to come down to how people think about an issue, but what's the policy going to be surrounding that issue. And maybe we can start there, because a big part of the debate in the United States revolving guns comes down to the Second Amendment and those in favor of guns and to not restrict guns in any way will cite the Second Amendment as the reason why we can't even, sometimes even open up the debate or the discussion, or that this right is something that can never be taken away. And so we could start there because there's some some interesting aspects of the debate or discussion there. So I just wanted to hear some of your thoughts from the legal side of things, including the, the Second Amendment and how it relates to the gun debate in the United States. So I want to dive into the, the Second Amendment, the legal issues related to this, because obviously they are front and center when you're talking about guns in the United States. Unlike many other countries, it's enshrined in the Second Amendment, the founding document uh, governing uh, U.S. laws. Before we dive into that, before we get into that, I also want to just say, it, you know, this is an emotionally charged issue, but 
for me, in both law school and in the economics PhD program, what we did to learn about how to think was through examples. So we learned critical thinking and clear thinking. And I would say law school was really about clearly thinking through issues. And in an economics PhD program, it was really about finding, clearly identifying causal relationships. What caused what? And through empirical research, through empirical methods, and this is in economics and all the social sciences. And I think through using this example, of course, we're going to be talking about the gun debate and gun control and gun, um, gun policy in the United States. But it also, I hope, will give us a broader perspective on how to address issues as they come to us. And this is any issue. To me, this way of thinking, clear, critical thinking, is relevant not only to policy debates, but also in thinking about how to raise your children, how to, how to have a good life. We could apply that same way of thinking to the important issues that we care about, too. But I think the best way to learn that is through example. That's how I learned it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but in, in, let's first begin at the legal issue and the Second Amendment, because that is, like you said, those who are very much in favor of the right to own a firearm, the right to every individual to own a firearm, first point to the Second Amendment. What's very important about this is to recognize that the Second Amendment, as it's being interpreted today, is far from what the Second Amendment was when it was drafted. So at the drafting of the Second Amendment, a few things were different. First of all, it was about the right to own a firearm in the context of a state militia. Mm -hmm. At the founding of the United States, there was no single standing army. So the way that they were able to defend themselves was through state militias, basically small state militaries. And so every individual, every man that was in these state militias in the context of that militia had the right to own a firearm. It was only refined to that right. Not only then, but it was also for the next 200 years in the United States, that was the interpretation of what the Second Amendment stood for in all legal jurisprudence, in all legal cases. So it was sort of a dormant amendment. It was the Second Amendment, but it was one of the least talked about amendments in the entire Constitution. Okay. So that's what it was about at its founding. Beginning in the 1960s, there was some effort after a couple of really famous assassinations, Martin Luther King and and JFK and others, there were some restrictions then on who should own a gun and who shouldn't. And then there was a reaction to that. Mm -hmm. Initially, the NRA was actually very much in favor of gun control and controlled measures and making sure we have registration and guns are in the hands of people that are not going to cause harm. But then it began to shift. There was almost a coup in the NRA where there was a completely different change in leadership and a change in the perspectives. And so this began a concerted effort particularly through law professors. There was a lot of uh, law, academic law journal articles written that began to say, you know what, the Second Amendment is actually more than just the right to own a firearm in the context of a state militia to protect ourselves. It's about the right of an individual to own a firearm to protect their home, to protect themselves. This was a completely new interpretation, Mm -hmm. and it took decades for this to take hold. And it wasn't until 2008 in a U.S. Supreme Court decision, this was the Heller the Heller decision, it was a five to four Supreme Court decision, that for the first time in 2008, the, the Second Amendment became about the right to own a firearm. Prior to that, it wasn't. There was a fault, another case in 2010, which gave it even more uh, authority, so that it became clear that now the Second Amendment, as it stands today, is about the right of an individual to own a firearm. But for those who say that this is based on the founding of the U.S. Constitution is where this was first is where we're getting our authority to have firearms. That's really not true. Because if we look at it that way, the other thing that was different in in the founding of the U.S. 
Constitution was that a firearm then was a musket. Today, when you can have several rounds a second with these assault weapons, back then, a marksman who was incredibly talented could maybe get three shots off in a minute. In a minute. So it's a, it's a musket. It was a completely different type of weapon we were talking about then. And so to point to that history, to say that's the reason we can't do anything about it, it's the founding document of the country, is a little bit misleading. This was a reinterpretation. Our laws reflect our values. As our values change, our laws change. And so if our values are such that we decide 45,000 deaths a year in the United States is too many, and it's not worth the benefits we get by having 400 million guns in this country with very little restrictions on, uh, on having them, then we need to begin to reassess our laws. And even if we have the Second Amendment of the right to own a firearm, that's not an unfettered, unrestricted right. It is subject to controls and restrictions. And we could talk about those as sure. we proceed. Yeah, I mean, I think that that point's really important that the Second Amendment, which is related to firearms or related to guns, is not the way it's often, or wasn't originally expressed in the way that it's often used now, which is so they justified because it's in the Constitution, I can use it in this way, but it wasn't in the Constitution for personal individual use. It was part of a, a militia and that expanded. But you brought up other points. One is um, also laws evolve as society and humanity evolves that should be the case even the founding fathers talked about that that we should not just keep some laws and think that should be the way it's supposed to be that it's in that way a living breathing document and on, on top of that that no right is unfettered or taken as given to you no matter what there's no right even freedom of speech which is part of the first amendment is not going to be true in all circumstances or you can lose that depending on what you do or how you use it so uh this idea that any restriction because that's how it's at times presented that you can't say anything about guns because it's the second amendment but that's not even how rights work that it's no matter what you have it in all circumstances in all ways and there's zero restrictions on that. So I think that's a, that's great critical, those points that you brought up from the legal perspective. One thing I'll say, which is just, uh, you know, I mentioned before the, you know, when we look at any, any issue, but any moral issue, any political issue, social issue, we have to all be aware that we have uh, biases and feelings that come into play. So really what happens is we hear about an issue or an issue we've heard about before, but we have an emotional reaction to it. Yeah. And so we have an emotional reaction. Then based on that, we have a, our feeling really about it, but we say it's our position, let's say. And then from that point, we tend to find evidence to support it rather than the other way around. Most people right. would like to think, myself and yourself included, that the only way I make any kind of decision, any kind of conclusion about an important issue is I weigh the evidence, I look at the arguments, and I come to a conclusion. And it doesn't mean that's not involved at all, but much more of it is having a reaction, and then the evidence actually comes afterwards to justify our position. And the reason why I say that is because people who fall on two sides of this debate that we're having, some that are for more gun restrictions will be like, yes, Worse, you know, you're so right, power home, and what you're saying. Those that are against it will somehow either justify it or say, no, it's different, or it's still the Second Amendment. And, and so we see this. And this is one of the things, you know, I, I wanted us to talk about it because it's such an important issue. But knowing that we even ourselves said, well, what's our intention in this today? Because we knew that people that are already agree with more restrictions will probably feel the same way and kind of preaching to the choir. Those that don't likely won't have their minds changed. And I'm not expecting to change anyone's mind today, but just to add some uh, discourse into this topic. And I feel that I can't 
be silent on an issue that I feel is very important as well. So that's just something I think also important to keep in mind. And I say that as we have this conversation, but also as anyone out there, if you're having these conversations, that if you are talking to people about it and they feel differently, be aware that just the arguments themselves won't convince them. So have a discussion, have a, I think discourse is important, but being very mindful that don't just think by pushing harder on what you think are the reasons why you're correct probably won't convince them anyway. So I always actually suggest just bringing up your thoughts in a not mild in the sense that it's the the ideas are mild, but don't think by force you're going to get them. The more you actually force on people, they get stronger in what they already believe rather than if you present things in a here are the reasons why I feel the way I do. I'd like to understand how you feel or think the way you do about this, but let me share my my side of things. I think you tend to get to a better place, but unfortunately the way we look at public discourse today, especially fueled by social media and videos on social media and comment sections and tweets and all that, it's about being more and more divisive and polarizing, saying the other side is stupid and immoral and dumb and how could you think this way? Mm-hmm. And that's the only way people think you have these conversations. So that's what I wanted to add. I actually wanted to say at the beginning of the conversation, but just adding that into this, that we want to be aware of that. And you and I are aware of, we come with our own biases into this discussion, you know? Absolutely. So addressing that first, the emotional issue, I I think in terms of how to persuade, I I completely agree. People are going to come with much of our values. Our values are based on emotions and feelings. What do we value more? What's more important to me? But it's, I think, important, at least the goal, the objective should be to get to some common ground with regard to the facts. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole purpose, I think, of academic disciplines and academic discourse. Even there, the biases are there. I certainly have mine. Um, I have my own uh, the expectations and emotional uh, valence of what I've seen guns do, of course, is going to impact my preferences, me personally. I don't have any affinity for guns that many people do. Many people are, um, they're gun enthusiasts. They enjoy their guns. It's, they have a history with it, maybe with their family, with their parents. And that colors the way they, they perceive guns. Mm-hmm. It makes them feel safe and secure. That of course is going to impact how you perceive guns. The goal should be, the goal should be, at least I try to, and you're right, emotion always will play a role, but our goal is to analyze the issue, seeing the facts, at least the facts as they are. And then being able to draw conclusions based on those facts, based on our values. Mm-hmm. What you mentioned about just one thing I wanted to quickly allude to about the Constitution and how it's con- Second Amendment, it's an amendment. So clearly there are changes. It's not something that's enshrined and fixed. There's also in legal scholarship this notion of the living Constitution, which many, many believe in. Some believe that you should just look at the intent, the original intent of the framers mm-hmm. when it was drafted. What did they intend? And that shouldn't be changed. That should be pretty much the basis of all of our laws, even till today. Otherwise, it's subject to the interpretation of any judge, and it's too flimsy, and it's not as as grounded and credible. There's some that believe that. Others believe it should be a living constitution. As society changes and evolves, it must. Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the founders, one of the framers, he his expectation when they drafted the constitution is that every 20 years, there'd be a new constitution, a brand new constitution. So that we should update it. It shouldn't. Every generation should have their own. He had no expectation that this many years later it would be. James Madison, for example, did. So it should be something that's evolving and changing. I, I think we're close to a commercial mm-hmm, break, mm-hmm. but I think when we come back, I would love to talk a bit more about trying to how do we persuade people when emotions are so so deeply involved in this, and how do we get clearer thinking on what for many is a murky issue, 
about whether guns actually do make us less safe or if there's other factors. The other factors are what is really most important, mental yeah. illness and others. Exactly. Yeah, mental illness is brought up a lot in shootings. Other things are there I think it's important to get into. So after the break, I'll continue the discussion on guns in America with my brother Parham. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on guns in America with my brother Parham. And um, you, know, you mentioned before the break, again, that the biases are very important. And one thing I'll just say is if you think you're unbiased about an issue like this, it just means you're unaware of your bias, not that you don't have them. We all right. have them. And I know yeah. personally as someone similar to you with the we didn't have guns in our family and our how we lived our lives. So we have a very different feeling from someone who grew up where guns were a normal part of their life. So I'm aware of that. It's very, it's a different type of conversation, but nonetheless, I can only share my own perspective and things, but I try to keep that in mind, my awareness of the, the biases that I'm going to have coming into this issue. Now, getting to some statistics, because you mentioned, and we're aware there's feelings, there's all these things, but we still have to get into some of the um, the statistics and the data and what it tells us about guns and guns in America specifically. But we know that the U.S. compared to other similar countries has way more mm -hmm. uh, guns and way more gun violence and gun death. Right. And maybe if you want, you could speak on some of the statistics um, that we Yeah, I mean, just basic general statistics. Uh, there are 400 million guns roughly in the United States currently. This number has been growing rapidly, especially over the last 20 years or so. There are 40... I think the numbers is it 44,922 something in that range 44 45,000 the last year that they have complete statistics that I saw for was 2020 and it's it's uh of those you're talking about gun deaths gun deaths per year sorry that was probably not clear the way I said that yes gun deaths per year in the United States of those about 24,000 are suicides which I think is the part that's often neglected and we could probably get into that a mm -hmm, bit too mm -hmm. um one of the most damaging things about having an excess number of guns and especially in people's homes is that it causes substantially more successful if the word is successful but but, but suicides that lead in death lead to death and having less lethal forms of attempted suicide leads to far less completed suicides which is why the suicide rate in the United States is quite high especially with men who are more likely to use a firearm and so What's particularly sad about this from my perspective is that often many of these people who commit suicide, um, had they not had this irreversible outcome, would have come to their come to a different perspective and no longer wanted to kill themselves. This is often this is often the case. And so uh, guns, one of the most harmful things from my perspective, from a policy standpoint that they cause is suicides that lead to death. Nineteen thousand uh, deaths from guns are from from homicides, from murders. And then there's a very, very small number that are due to other things, accidents and, and um, law enforcement and mm -hmm. others that they can't document. So that comprises this, this 44,000 number. Now, what's important, mental illness is one of the biggest things, and I'd like you to talk about this as well a bit, but um, with your background and experience and knowledge, it's, uh, of course, prevalent in the United States, but it's no more prevalent than in other industrialized mm -hmm. countries and other countries that we look at with statistics we see mental illness in the range of roughly people that are, and I maybe you can check this and, and from your perspective and your interpretation of the data, but roughly from 18 to 21% of people have some serious mental illness in the United States. And that is generally about the same that we see in other countries. And yet we have so many more uh, gun deaths from, from, from violence mm -hmm. of all kinds. Now, now guns is part of that. 
but violent death is significantly more common in the United States. So if, if um, you know, from a social science perspective, if mental illness were the issue, you would probably want to see that across countries, those countries that have more mental illness have more gun deaths, or let's say violent deaths of all types. You would want to see some correlation there. We don't see such a correlation. Or if you saw more deaths, you'd want to see more mental illness. Certainly, either way, right. in either direction. Correct. And so that's, I mean, yeah, this is, you know, I do, I'll touch on the suicide aspect because that's a very, very important one to me. Um, but what you were mentioning, I think, is especially what is brought up when there is a mass shooting that happens and then we blame mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, and so is mental illness related to someone grabbing a gun and, and killing many people? Almost definitely it's mm -hmm. there. But as you said, we have mental illness in all countries. It's not a, a uniquely American problem. And the statistics, depending on whatever diagnosis you're talking about, there are some at times differences depending on how statistics I've seen, but it's not something that's going to at all account for what we're talking about. Right. We do have about the same amount of mental illness in the United States as in other countries. So to say it's a mental health issue uh, is not the case at all. It is related to mental health. Mental health is relevant here. Doesn't mean we neglect that aspect. We definitely don't do enough for mental health in the United States. We don't do enough for health care, period, which includes mental health and medical health. Which is why I'll just jump in for one comment, which is why it's such a compelling argument. Because mental illness, if I were to say what's the number one issue we should be addressing in this country, maybe in all countries, mental illness. We should put more emphasis on that than anything I can think of. So it is, of course, something that we need to give more resources to and have more thoughtful policy on. Mental illness is enormously important. That doesn't mean, though, that that negates the issue that we have with guns. Those are two, those are two issues that should be addressed. Um, both should be addressed. Both are relevant. Both are incredibly important. Maybe mental illness is the more important one, but that doesn't mean that the issue with guns is not an issue of guns at all and having 400 million guns in this country. It is an issue of mental illness. It's simply that the mental illness issue is prominent, important, meaningful, and must be addressed, and we should do more for that. The gun issue is not caused by more mental illness. Otherwise, we would see more mental illness in the countries that have more gun deaths or vice versa. Mm -hmm. We don't see that. Right. And so, yeah, because we, you know, of course, mental health should be addressed, but, you know, it's just bringing up another important issue doesn't mean that another issue is not relevant. And again, mm -hmm. so if we see similar levels of mental health issues in the world, but more gun deaths in one country and then more guns in that country, mm -hmm. the connection does become pretty clear and there's right. lots of research that, that supports that. So, you know, that to me is very important that we look at that and really it relates to the suicide in the same way, because what happens here is that a lot of times people say, well, if they didn't have a gun, they would do something else. And yes and no. So, of course, sometimes people can be so suicidal that they will find some way. But what we do find is that when people have more uh, easier access to lethal means, as we can call it, they're more likely to take their own life by suicide. And so that's actually one of the things we assess when you're a therapist and you have a client that you think might be suicidal, you ask many questions. And one of the things you ask is what are their means? What access do they have to something that might be able to take their life? Mm -hmm. Because that's critical. Because to me, this is looking at this bigger picture issue of why I think guns is not a good idea or to have or to have easily access is that Human beings, we are, you know, wonderful. We're lots of things, but we don't 
always make good decisions or we can make very in the moment emotional decisions that don't serve us that can hurt us other people that are not the best things for us and so when we give ourselves access to something that can do a lot of damage it isn't a good thing because sometimes we will use it in the wrong way mm-hmm. not about good guys with guns bad guys with guns good girls with guns, bad girls, whoever it is. It's just that we will make some bad decisions with whatever it is, whether it's even financial or physical. If we can cause great harm to others or to ourselves, it can be very costly because we likely will regularly use it more harmfully. So if we had even more lethal means for people to have, we would have more deaths by those means. It wouldn't be like, well, people would know that these types of guns or bombs that they would give everyone a bomb, that they'd be very careful because they know it's yeah. a bomb. We just make some decisions. And suicide is a very big one because one of the things you'll say, it's kind of a cliche thing, but it has a lot of value is that, you know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It's a little simplified and people are yeah. sometimes suffering for a long time. But essentially it's that you're making a decision because of how you're feeling right now, but that way you're feeling right now won't last forever yes. or will go away. Yeah. And so when we give people this, these means, they can do things that then there's no coming back from, whether it's themselves or taking someone else's life. And so that to me is a very important thing of what we create in the world of giving people access to ways of hurting themselves and other people is something that is just because of humans and human nature and who we are and how we are that we're going to make bad decisions and so we want to limit the ways that we can do damage with those bad decisions completely i agree so there's even you know this argument it's very very it's almost become a cliche because it's it's the rallying cry of a lot of people that are pro pro guns and against gun control is that it's not guns don't kill people people kill people which is of course true all of these arguments are fundamentally true mental yeah. illness is a big issue people are the ones killing them it's really about them uh it's you know it's that's the mechanism used the problem is that even if we take the argument at, at its face Guns don't kill people, people kill people, but they kill more people. Mm-hmm. If they had a musket, the guns that were at the founding of the U.S. Constitution, those muskets that you could shoot two or three a minute, fewer people would die than if you were using an assault rifle. So at least we can say that, that, that fewer would die if they use this, this mechanism. That's one. Two is it's actually, you know, for example, with suicide, it's an irreversible single moment. I mean, imagine if which is like with the touch of a button on my watch, I could, I could kill somebody mm-hmm. I, I, could, I can or, kill myself yeah. or create an explosive let's take it to the next level i can create a, a force that would be a bomb that would destroy this building right just increasing the force i mean us people who are pro guns and this is when i'm starting to get a tiny bit passionate but they're even against any restriction at all on the types of weapons assault weapons weapons basically weapons of war mm-hmm. even those can't get approval and get passed through congress which is really disappointing because those weapons are designed for the sole purpose of killing as many people as possible it's fundamentally mm-hmm. what it's for. And if guns are about protection, which is the core argument around the right to have a firearm, is either for sport or for protection. For either of those mechanisms, there's no reason to have a weapon that can kill mass casualties so quickly, which is what those weapons are designed for. Uh, on a battlefield, it, it, it sort of, I guess it makes sense. Even there, I think it's barbaric. But there, I guess there's a rationale for it. I can't understand why some individual should be able to walk into a store and purchase such a weapon. That doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I'd like to point out it's restrictions on age. So right now, people that can, can purchase a gun at the age of 18, that to me is really striking, especially for boys. Boys are not, their prefrontal cortex is still developing even into their mid-20s. That's where sort of we make sound judgments. And that's why, you know, we see so many deaths, particularly caused by, by boys, teenagers, through driving, through reckless behavior, reckless, risky behavior. That, that part of the brain that's designed for judgment and sort of making these 
sort of analyses that leads to more sound judgment is not even fully developed. The idea of many of these mass shootings have been 18-year-olds. They just turned 18 and they went and purchased them. That's another one that to me seems common sense. That mm -hmm. at minimum, I think, I think 21 is far too young. But at le even that, there's, there's um, resistance to that. So, so, you know, I think there's middle ground here at minimum that we can make progress on that I think anyone with sound judgment, even someone who is a gun enthusiast, believes in gun culture, wants to have a gun in the home, believe that's something that they would never, ever want to give up. They would never give up their guns. I think even that person can step up and say, well, an 18-year-old probably is too young to own a, a weapon of war. Is that something we can have some resolution on? I think that's reasonable. And I think making arguments as emotionally charged as they are against that, I think damages the credibility of someone who is against gun control. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, these issues are very, again, we talked about bring up a lot of emotions. People talk about safety. People, Like I said, I mentioned this in the introduction, people bring up safety on both sides. I need the gun to protect myself. Right. And on the other side, well, guns are killing people, you know, from shootings and suicides. So both sides will bring up safety. And, and, and that's obviously why I think it's such a visceral type of a reaction. Yes. When we talk about the emotions when it comes to uh, coming to thoughts, a position on an issue, we can see that these are intense emotions. And that's why they're also hard to break. It's not just a preference for something. It's that this is life or death. This it is, is, it yeah. could, maybe people are going to kill my kids or I need to protect my kids. You that's know, right. that's how, you know, people are feeling on both sides um, of, of the aisle on this. So we can understand that this is again where I'm saying, I know to me, even I feel very strongly, and I, maybe it was good that I said feel, but I also think about it, about this issue yeah. about guns. And I think yeah. that having less, getting to a point where we almost, we have essentially no guns would be to me a good aspiration and that's also complicated i get that it's not simple to go from a country as you said has 400 million guns to yeah. get to that so i'm for me it's very clear that having more extreme ways of causing harm is just a bad thing because yeah. people will use it whether it's to harm themselves or others or accidentally to me that's where we want to reduce or eliminate can you make it to zero maybe ever maybe not but less is more in this case that you're less guns will save more lives and so to me it's very important that we move in that direction that's how i see it again i can understand someone when i say that they think they might be thinking i'm taking away the thing that protects them that makes them feel safe that they protect their family whatever it might be so i can understand that i do again feel this way about it and looking at the data have that that position i'm looking at the time so i do want to go to commercial break which is our last one on the uh, after the break, we'll try to wrap up this discussion. As we knew, we'd really just touch on uh, scratching the surface of this very deep issue in the United States related to guns and gun violence. United States, again, my guest tonight, my brother, Parham. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So getting into our last segment here with my brother, Parham, we are talking about guns, gun violence in the United States, legal and other aspects of the mental health. One thing I'll also add, when it comes to mass shootings, uh, it's something that I think uh, it's important to be aware of the multifaceted issues. I think guns are the biggest issues and mental health is, is not the cause of it, of course, because we have, as you said, mental health issues in every country, but we don't have gun violence at our levels in any other country. So uh, what we want to look at is there is that issue. There's also things of cultural issues. We do have some things in the United States of using violence if you don't get what you want, right. uh, using force, which we, we see in our international diplomacy, or if you call it diplomacy or international way of being. Yeah. Um, and 
just our culture itself. It's very much a me country. Sometimes I say it's not really a free country. It's a me country. We have a lot of times in the United States where it's if you don't get what you want, something's wrong. And I actually mm -hmm. encourage parents that from a young age teaching your, your children that it's important to know what you want, ask for what you want, but don't think you always should get what you want or deserve what you want. Sometimes you won't get what you want and that's okay. And it doesn't mean if you don't get what you want, go take it or force it or something like that. So I think those aspects are there. And then I think, unfortunately, something becomes part of the zeitgeist. Mass shootings become something that comes to a young, usually man's attention of yes. something they can do, unfortunately. So these things are complex. I don't want to make it seem very oversimplified. I do think guns are the, the biggest issue related to it. But I do want to mention that I think there are other psychological factors. You know, those are maybe things to touch on at another time, but just some things to, to throw out there. But I think there are a few other major issues, uh, areas of this discussion that are worth um, talking about. One is the economics of guns. Yes. We, yeah. know, we live in capitalist society and especially United States, maybe in some ways hyper-capitalist about the way we look at profits and how any uh, political change, really the first thing you look at is like, is it economically a good idea? Meaning, you know, what's the bottom line there? So if you'd like, maybe you could touch on this, some of yeah. the economics related to uh, the gun issue in the United States. Yeah. To me, what I, what I like about the gun issue is that, I guess, I think it highlights, it brings really a spotlight on one thing that has been dysfunctional about U.S. policymaking more broadly. And of course, there are so many virtues to the U.S. political system, the balance of powers, powers the, the checks and balances. The U.S. Constitution really was a brilliant, brilliant document in so many ways. We have a system that's, that's quite, it's why it's lasted as long, it's endured as long as it's had, and why the United States has been so successful. But with everything that's successful, there's often things that are weaknesses. Sometimes even the strengths can be its weakness. So a capitalist economy that has such a thriving, massive, massive economy has, has made the United States quite successful. However, economics plays a huge role in policymaking. Policymaking is very, very influenced by money in a way that is to the detriment of the people. I can't think of a more clear example of this than guns. Over 90% of NRA members are in favor of universal background checks. Think about this. Sorry, 90% of the population and the majority of NRA owners. Let me, let me state that again. It's very important that I get this fact right. A majority of NRA owners, NRA members, are in favor of universal background checks. And based on the statistics in this ranges, but I've seen it at basically between 80 to even 90 plus percent of the general population is in favor of universal background checks. It is so rare to get that type of consensus from the U.S. population on any issue. Mm -hmm. Any issue, it's so divisive right now in particular. Agreeing on what day of the week it is <laughs> can be divisive, right? That might be the one thing we agree on. So 90% of people are in favor of something and they still can't get it passed. They often can't even get it to a vote mm -hmm. in the Senate. That's, that's shocking. And that tells you that there's something else going on. What's that other thing? The gun industry is a multi, tens of billions of dollars a year industry and this industry is very very concerted and together and when a force is consolidated and unified even if the other side is larger it often will win a unified force in policy making is very very strong especially if they have money behind it and the nra does and the gun industry does 400 million guns in this country a significant number of which have been sold in the last 10 years it's a huge industry and they are very influential on congressmen. So they are very, very 
they can literally impact the outcome of, a, of an election. And they're aware of this. And so to preserve their power, these are the congressmen, to preserve their power, to, men and women, and to get the funding they need to be elected and reelected is very much influenced by money. So we are, the arguments on all sides, emotionally charged as they are, are there, but we have something in which even when there is consensus from the U.S. population on something, that we are, this is, this is reasonable and fair to have universal background checks or a ban on certain types of assault weapons, we still can't get it passed. Why? Very clear. We are choosing money and power over the lives of people. I can't state it any more clearly than that. Mm -hmm. I know that I have my biases. I'm certainly not a gun enthusiast or a fan of guns, but this position, I, I it just, by ripping out all of the emotion out of it is just crystal clear. We really do have a country in which when you have 90% of the people in favor of something and you can't get it passed, there's something else going on. The people in Congress are choosing their power and the money that they get from their donors over the lives of people. And they are using red herrings and other arguments, be it mental illness or having a single door or arming the teachers. Some of these arguments are laughable. Some of them have some basis, but all of them are just avoiding and dodging the real issue. The real issue, which is that they need the money that they get from this very, very powerful lobbying force in the US Congress. Mm -hmm. That's the main issue. So we are choosing lives lost, children's lives lost, children in their classrooms lives lost, over them preserving their power yeah and I, yeah it's a uh, it's um i think you said we're choosing money over the lives it's just we have a system that that does that essentially yes. and that's something that actually on wednesday show i'm going to discuss a book related to really alternatives to capital capitalism in some way and one of the biggest issues is when we look at capitalism it puts capital and 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 money and that type of the quote unquote the economy and GDP mm -hmm. over lives. Yes. So we have that in the system itself. And then our political system, it just amplifies that. And, um, you know, I think it's not going to solve it, but I think having term limits or even one limit uh, serving Congress members would, would have some effect because as soon as people get elected, you see this, all people in the United States are doing, as soon as they get elected is they're focusing on getting elected again. Yes. And the main thing that means is getting money and not, you know, angering the wrong people. So they just have yeah. to raise money again to then get reelected again. And then the cycle perpetuates itself. Yes. And it really is heartbreaking. And obviously these types of systems are so entrenched in our way of being that it's going to take a long time for for it to change, which is something just to be aware of, which is why I think it's important you're bringing that up, yes. that we see this all the time, that the debates boil down to the money of it. They won't say that. Politicians won't say, you know, I'm getting this money, so I'm not going to speak against guns. But we do see that that is what's happening because you can follow the money. There are ways to see who's getting how much money. Sometimes it's not that transparent, but at one times that it is. And you see that those individuals are very aware of how they talk about the gun issue and like you said we'll make it only about everything but guns mental health doors as you said all that and that yeah. is something that's very heartbreaking and i think something we have to be aware of and face in this country that our focus on finances and and money and the gdp is really leading to us choosing the economy over well-being yeah. essentially yeah and i have less of an issue with someone who's a gun enthusiast someone who feels i can even empathize and sympathize with someone who says i feel protected with a gun in the home i feel unsafe if you take my gun away from me and i'm living in a violent threatening world that makes me feel less safe. i can understand those things the thing that i can't is the insincerity of someone who's the policymaker who actually can make an impact mm -hmm. 
who is choosing to just avoid the issue. And that's why I, I really wanted our thinking about this to be as clear as possible, you know, and to identify what's really going on, because it's really easy to muddy the waters with compelling, emotionally charged arguments that have some grain of truth, but are ultimately hollow to avoid what the real issue is. All of, look, nothing, when someone commits a mass shooting, nothing is a single variable event. Many factors led to that, mm -hmm. for sure. And so we can ad identify the other factors as well. But the one factor of the gun causing more significant, irreparable, permanent damage and harm is undeniable. So let's focus on that. The other issues we should address as well. But that one should be looked at. So what really bothers me is the insincerity of, of policymakers. About the issue of the feeling of being safer in the home with a gun, I think this is important to point out as well. Guns make us feel, for some people, make them feel safer, but it doesn't make them safer. For the vast, based on all the statistics that we have, maybe for certain individuals who are particularly proficient and are very good at what they do and have a lot of experience, perhaps it is, I'm not gonna deny that. But based on the overall statistics, someone is two times more likely to kill themselves with a gun than to kill an intruder. You're four times more likely to be shot by someone who has a gun if you have a gun with you. So having a gun makes you dramatically more likely to actually be shot at or your family members. So the only thing that stops, they say, this is another one of the sayings, a good guy with a gun is a bad guy with a gun. Or vice actually, versa. the only thing that well, I would say the vice versa is the truth. No, the no, only, okay. Well, yeah, because the only thing that makes you a, a bad guy with a gun is more induced to kill you when there's a good guy with a gun. If a good guy with a gun is there, they're far more likely to inflict harm, and you're much more likely for that gun to be used to kill somebody in the home than someone outside the home. And I think it's just important for people to be aware of that. It doesn't mean don't go. If you believe that you want to have a gun and that makes you feel safe, I'm not going to question that decision whatsoever. But these are the statistics. It's especially there's accidents with children, mm -hmm. with teenagers that they get a hold of the gun and they cause harm. So just being aware of that is important. Sure. I mean, well, that's the, you know, it's the, it's a feeling of psychological safety and it's understandable. I feel there's a threat and so I want to have a weapon that yes. makes me feel, but just, you know, having a weapon doesn't necessarily mean you're safer. It make you feel safer, but yes. it doesn't mean you are safer. And that's what we're trying to look at. Then the statistics do show that as you yes. were saying very clearly. And I think this is why we're seeing more and more agencies saying that guns in America is a public health issue, yeah. you know, and unfortunately because everything is so politicized and we saw this so clearly with the coronavirus pandemic where you couldn't talk about anything without it becoming a hugely divisive political issue and had nothing to do with trying to understand what was going on at times. Um, but we're seeing the same thing with the gun issue where it's not about, well, let's look at our people, our lives being lost or what's going on. Uh, agencies are even at times intimidated to say it's a public health issue or to, to describe it in a certain way because of how powerful the political forces are yeah. against it or how divisive it can be. And I think that's really unfortunate. I even saw um, a, a psychiatrist, I, 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 want, I think I knew who it was, I won't say the name just in case, but anyway, and he was saying that uh, he thinks we should put, you know, doctors used to have pins on their their lapels, they would have this, that had like a cigarette with a line through it, kind of like anti-smoking. Yeah. He was saying all doctors should wear a lapel with a gun through it like that, like an yeah. axe with a gun through it to say yeah. that, look, this is a public health issue. Um, and people have preferences, lots of things, and it's that's understandable. We're not just talking about we want to do something you don't like or, you know, this is something that you know, it's about the lives and looking at what's going on. And so 
it's still it's 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 going to be a debate that goes on for a long time but i really do hope i i can't envision a solution that could be my limited thinking where more guns is going to be the solution yeah i think less guns which will take a long time in this country because of again when you say 400 million guns mm-hmm. uh, it's that's it's a process it's not going to happen in any way quickly but i hope that we move in that direction i'm hopeful we will because i think we will go in that direction you know maybe it's uh, naive to have hope in the u.s with how things have gone but i do have hope that we will move in that direction there's there's precedent and examples for having it has worked there was a mass shooting in australia they had a giant gun buyback uh program that was very successful they had new gun control policies they took action against when they had a mass shooting and it and it did lead to less gun deaths over time so there is precedent in other countries where we see directly that when they have more gun control measures and stock by uh, gun buybacks that we ended up leading to less gun deaths. It has been done in other countries. I would love to see it happen in the United States. I think the only thing we do, I can't, we can't control what the policymakers do. And this discussion could have been had for another 30 minutes about what's going on in, in policymaking related to guns. There's much more we could have talked about if we had time. But the one thing we can do is keep bringing this up. This is why we had this discussion with us together. Keep knocking on that door. We are aware of this. We know what's happening. And we are aware of the facts. And also to clarify the poor hollow arguments i mean that's really as a researcher as a social scientist that that you are in your phd program and i've been you want to get to the heart of what's really going on and identify what the real cause is and just rip out all of the false arguments the arguments based on poor assumptions and there's so many of those about this gun debate that leads to inaction when there's ambiguity when we're not sure what the real truth of something is usually we keep the status quo yeah well and the thing is look with these any kind of issue with it the 100 percent truth of it will essentially if you're looking for 100 percent truth we're not going to find it you right. know even this i mean i feel like it's fairly clear but there's never going to be 100 percent certainty on really any complex issue like this so we can't be waiting for them that's something that people also use to you know as you're saying like kind of uh take away the force of what's going on sure. so, well this look at this situation where it didn't happen or look at this and it's you know we're talking about the the evidence and, and looking at everything in that way um but you know we today also we do have to wrap up but as i mentioned it's also this uh, mindset we're hoping to put out there of having these conversations with making them conversations not yelling matches not yeah you know we obviously were in similar agreement so it wasn't going to get that way but in general don't try to don't think you have to yell your way you're not going to yell your way to convincing someone have actual conversations discourse with individuals doesn't mean don't care you're, you can be passionate about it but being aware of the conversations we have and making them actual conversations on not just uh violence in that way we're talking about gun violence and having violent conversations so we do have to wrap up for for tonight but big thank you to param thanks for joining me thank you uh hope you enjoyed the show big thank you to amir here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr fadir lakwi be kind and take risks have a wonderful night mm-hmm.